And today we continue our series on Just Lead, and we just have two last messages this week and next week to wrap up our series. And if you're new with us, uh, we've been walking through the book of 1 Samuel, which is a book about uh, learning to live through transitions, triumphs, and tragedies in life. How do we lead or how do we live through those kinds of scenarios that we face in life? And that's exactly what we see in the book of 1 Samuel for God's people, for leaders within God's people. And today we're going to see one of those principles of, of leadership whether you're in a, a place of leading a lot of people or maybe just a handful of people or maybe not even a whole lot of people at all as we're going to see here, there are some common things you're going to face anytime you choose to lead it all. And today I want you to see two main things. One is a situation you're going to face if you want to be a leader. A situation you're going to face if you ever would choose to lead. And the second thing I want you to see is four principles that will help you navigate that situation in a healthy way. Okay, so a situation you're going to face, and then four principles that will help you navigate it in a healthy, God-honoring way. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 25. That's where we're at today, 1 Samuel 25. If you're new to your Bible, in your worship guide, there's a uh, guide you can follow along with and take some notes, and there's a page number there that'll take you to this chapter in the Bible and those hardcover Bibles in the chairs in front of you. So you can reach down there and grab one of those, open it up to this page, and follow along with us. Uh, we'll also have the passages up on the screen. You can follow along there as well. 1 Samuel 25, let's pray, and we'll jump in to see what this passage has to say for us today. Father, we are grateful and thankful as we gather as your people today. And my prayer is that as we give thanks, that you will open our hearts and our minds to the truths that we will see from your word today, Lord. Help our minds comprehend and understand what you are teaching us through this story today. And Lord, may our hearts respond in faith and obedience to put the things that we learn into practice in our lives that we might become a people who are learning to live through transition, triumph, and tragedy in our own lives. And I ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First Samuel 25, uh, a situation all leaders are going to face, and then four principles for how to face it well. So we're going to move through these fairly quick today, but I think you'll find them to be very practical and realistic to what we see in life. So the first is the situation. So the first 13 verses in this story, the author is setting us up for what we're going to see, and it's giving us a lot of background. So I'm going to kind of talk you through the story as it's going here. Many of you know that David uh, in this st story is, is the future anointed king. He has been anointed and has said, you're going to be the future king. He's not that king right now. He's running and kind of hiding from the current king who's trying to destroy him. Uh, but David's kind of got his own group of about 600 people with him, and they're kind of wandering through the wilderness and trying to hang out until his time comes. And this is a story that happens during that time. So we see in verse 2 of chapter 25, it says, Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. So he's hiding out in all these wilderness areas out in the middle of nowhere. And it says there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. 
Now, all this is background information, and whenever you see these kinds of details, you know the author is setting us up for the story, kind of like the beginning of a movie when you get introduced to a lot of characters and the tension of the story starts to kind of come out of what's going to come forth. And verse 3 is just that. It's kind of a parenthetical statement that's giving us some insight as to what's to come. It says, now the name of the man, the man that had all these sheep in the, or shearing, was Nabal. Now, that doesn't mean anything to us, but the Hebrew word naval uh, means fool or foolish. So I don't know what you know, parent would name their child fool. You, know, you don't see that name very common. Even though many of us might call our kids that afterwards, that's not actually what we're going to name them when they come out. But this story is telling us, hey, this guy's name was foolish. He was a foolish guy, and it's probably given us some insight into his, his behavior. It says, in the name of his wife, Abigail, the woman was discerning, and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Okay, now that doesn't again mean anything to us, but to the original readers, that would have helped them tremendously because of the story of David. So let me give you a little background as to who the Calebites are and why that's important to the story. The Calebites were descendants of, let me give you one guess, Caleb, man, you guys are a sharp. A sharp group. I was going to give you two guesses, but I thought you guys had had a left turkey. You're probably smarter than the average person today. So they're the descendants of the Calebites. The Calebites were a smaller clan, a significant clan within the larger tribe of Judah. And the tribe of Judah was the tribe that David was from as well. Okay, so we don't obviously have tribes or clans nowadays, but we have families, and, and we're kind of familiar with families, and we're in Laredo, where everyone's related, related in some way, or if the right two people married, then everyone would be related in Laredo, right? So we understand this idea of families and groups, and within family groups within our city, you kind of know of each other somewhat. You can at least know names, you know a little bit of their reputation. So it was similar there. If you were of the same tribe, you probably would have been familiar with other people in your tribe, in particular, prominent people. Okay, Nabal is a pro prominent person. He's not only uh, rich, he's been well-known, he has lots of people working for him, but he's part of a smaller clan within Judah, the Calebites, who were a well-known tribe because Caleb was one of the spies who was willing to say, yes, we can go into the promised land. He was held up as a, a person of character and faith, and so all his descendants were kind of a unique people, not only because of that history, but they also settled the town of Bethlehem. And Bethlehem, we know, is key to the story of Jesus' birth, but it goes all the way back to David's own hometown as well. So the Calebites settled the town of Bethlehem where David was born and of the same tribe. So what the author is doing is saying these two guys obviously knew of each other. Nabal is a pretty wealthy man from a very significant clan within Judah. David was born in the town that the Calebites settled and David's the future anointed king. Everyone in Israel in particular the tribe members of that king anointed would have known who David was, okay? So that's the information here. These guys knew of each other, and you're going to see why that plays out in the story as we go on. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. So David's telling them to greet him in his name. Why would he do that? unless Nabal should obviously know who David was. And thus you shall greet him. 
Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell me, or tell you. So here's what David's saying, and you're going to see this as the story goes on, but I'll, I'll give you a little insight. David's with his men, and they're out in these wilderness areas hiding from Saul. And the only other people that were out in the wilderness areas were two types. One was shepherds, because they had lots of goats or sheep, and they'd be out in the wilderness where there was a place for them to let their, their sheep roam and eat. And the other people that were out there were robbers, kind of misfits that were out there and didn't want to operate in the city and instead would go out there and they'd often pillage these little shepherds and take their sheep and and live off of that so what was happening is since David was out there and David was a man of character he would look out for his tribesmen who had shepherds out there and so David's 600 men basically they were out in the wilderness they saw shepherds of other tribes members like Nabal and they would protect those shepherds from all the criminals that were out there trying to steal their sheep. And David is just saying, hey, that's exactly what was going on. Nabal is one of my tribe. I'm going to have his back while he's out there. And then he says this, Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. The shearing of the sheep often happened twice a year, and one of them would be on a big feast day, so it would be a huge celebration. And a person that had a lot of sheep would often celebrate that and welcome other people within their tribe or their family to be part of that celebration. So David is saying, please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. So David's just asking for provisions from Nabal as they celebrate for his men since he'd been a big part of protecting Nabal's sheep. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants. Now, think about this information I've given you, what a typical reader would have known already, and look at how Nabal answers. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? The fact that he even knows his dad's name obviously shows that he knows exactly who David is. He said, there are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters, Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. So here you see Nabal and how he responds, and you see this whole big conflict brewing. Nabal just totally dismisses what David's done and his kindness and looking over his sheep and his shepherds all this time, and and David just asks for a small favor. Hey, could you provide some provisions during a time when a tribesman would normally do that? And Nabal just completely neglects David and pretends he doesn't even know who he is and says, why should I give my hard-earned sheep, my hard-earned provisions to someone who is just wandering around, is broken away from his master as if David's some kind of villain? And David gets ticked off. And he straps on his sword. He tells his men to strap on his sword. And he's heading to confront Nabal in a situation that we're going to see it play out. But here's my first point and what the author, I think, is setting up for us and teaching us is this. Is all leaders 
will face conflict. All leaders are going to face conflict. Here's David, the anointed king. He's been kind to Naval. He's helped him out. He's looked after him, even though he didn't need to. In fact, he would have typically been the type of person that would have taken from these shepherds, these helpless shepherds out there, to provide for his own men. Instead, he's watching out for them at his own expense. And yet, Nabal just neglects him completely. This passage reveals in a number of ways, not just the fact that even a good leader is going to face conflict, it's just part of what happens. It also reveals the reality of David, who is much of a hero through the book of First and Second Samuel. But as we realize in the stories like this, and as we'll see in Second Samuel, that as much of a hero and much as a godly man that David is, he still has flaws like the rest of us. David overreacts, and he's ready to wipe out this whole group of Nabal's family just because he was offended or taken lightly in this situation. That's what I love about the Bible, and that's what, for me, confirms the reality of the Scripture so much. You see, if you were going to fake a book, if you were going to write a book as a human being of a faith that you wanted to try to convert other people to, we as humans would most likely write it in such an idealistic way that everyone would say, oh, that's got to be the truth. There's no flaws or there's no faults at all in there. But God doesn't do that. Because when God wrote the scriptures, his point was never to exalt human beings as the ultimate end all. His purpose was to save human beings, even oftentimes from ourselves. And we see that even people in, David, in David's case, David's one of the characters that's written the most about other than Jesus of any character in the whole Bible. And yet you see David's strengths, you see his heart for God, but you also see his brokenness and his need for a greater king and a greater savior than even himself. And this is a great story where we see that and how honest God is when he portrays our lives, that he sees every part of us, good, bad, and ugly, and it's not our perfect responses that save us, it's our heart and our dependence on Jesus Christ. Second thing we're going to see here is, is some principles of how we walk through conflict. So the next four points are just that. How do we face conflict well when it comes to our doorstep? So verse 14 continues the story and says this. But one of the young men, uh, one of the young men of Nabal's servants, tells Abigail, which is Nabal's wife, Behold, he says, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us. So here's this servant of Nabal telling Nabal's wife, Abigail, exactly what David had said. David had, had cared for them while they were out in the wilderness. said, yet the men were very good to us and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day. And while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail made haste 
and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared for the five seas of parched grain, a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband of all. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missing of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more so, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belongs to him. See, a really important principle here, and here's my second point for you. How do you handle conflict when it comes up? The first is this. Leaders are proactive, not passive with conflict. Leaders are proactive, not passive with conflict. Even David, even though we're not seeing the best of him in this story, you are seeing this fact that as a leader, he was proactive. He was a little too proactive, like he overreacted. He was just going to come in and wipe out all of Naval's family. But you do see him as a man who's going to act in a situation and not just sit back passively. You also see another character in this story come out, Abigail. In fact, the scripture says this, that Abigail made haste. It uses that word to talk about how she did this. She didn't just sit back. She didn't just ponder. She didn't say, oh, I hope this just blows over. Maybe David will, you know, change his mind. She acted on this. She knew that this situation could go really south and that to do nothing could result in harm to a whole lot of people. And so Abigail risks her life for a female in this time frame to do what she did was absolutely unheard of. In fact, what's interesting is Abigail is going to give a speech that we're going to see a good portion of it here that's actually the longest recorded speech of any female in the whole Bible. And it shows the courage of a woman to act in a culture that wouldn't have normally allowed such a thing to step in and intercede for her family in a time of great conflict. You see, conflict is one of those things that that is kind of like a bad wound. You remember when you were a kid and you'd wipe out on your bike and you'd slide along the cement and you'd get all those rocks and just stuff, those nasty burns you get. And, and when you went in the house, you knew exactly what your mom was going to say. Bring that over here. Let me wipe that. Let me clean that out. And you just wanted to cover it up and avoid it because you knew it was going to hurt to clean all that junk out of there. You see, you could avoid cleaning that out and avoid a lot of pain initially by just not cleaning out that wound but what you realize is that to not clean it out saves you pain for the moment but it's going to cause much greater and lasting pain for the long haul that's a lot like conflict and just like a bad wound a wise person knows you have to make haste to take care of that wound now you're never going to avoid pain it's either going to come now in the immediate and lead to healing down the road or it's going to avoid a little bit now and it's going to turn into long-lasting pain that never seems to ever go away. And Abigail knew that the only way you can resolve conflict in a healthy way is to be proactive in addressing it while it's still hot, so to speak. 
And that's exactly what she did. Uh, as the story goes on, we're going to see what happens and some other principles we see in Abigail that show her incredible leadership in, the, uh, in a greatly difficult conflict. Verse 23 says this, When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, and underline this if you have your Bible, because you're going to see this twice through this passage, and I think it reveals our principle here. She says, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Now remember, Abigail didn't do this. She was just married to the man that did. But she steps into the situation and she takes responsibility. She says, please let your servant speak into your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. So she's just making a play off of his name and saying, this reveals the foolishness of my husband. What he did was foolish. And she's taking responsibility for it. She says, but I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, she's hoping that that's going to happen, that the Lord's going to restrain him. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to you, the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. So she's saying this about David. The Lord's going to make you a sure house because you're fighting the battles of the Lord. She knows what his future is. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. Here's the second principle we see of how to navigate conflict as a leader. Leaders take personal responsibility for mistakes. Leaders take personal responsibility for mistakes. Twice we see that in this passage. Abigail says, on me alone be the guilt. And then later she says, please forgive me, your servant. Abigail courageously steps in and intercedes for her family. When an incredible act of courage and selflessness and love Abigail shows that you don't need to have a significant place of leadership in society. You don't have to have a position that makes you a leader to act as a courageous leader. See, for a female or a woman to step in and do this was unheard of in her day. For her to approach the future king like she did and risk her life, but she did it anyways. She didn't cower back. She didn't act passively. She stepped into the situation and she, as we're going to see, saw the big picture of what would happen if no one did anything. My husband is sitting there being passive. You're going to see, well, you we won't read the whole story, but I'd encourage you to read the rest of the story. It's pretty fascinating uh, to find out what happens to Nabal. But here we see an incredible example of a person leading even though they didn't have a position of leadership. The next thing we see as we step into it is another great principle for how to walk through a conflict and, and Abigail's gonna capture it perfectly as we look at verses 29 and following. She says this to David, if men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. In the lives of your enemies, he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. 
So she's encouraging David to trust God and to trust that God's going to protect him from his enemies. Don't take it into his own hands. Verse 31, he says, And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel. So Abigail obviously knows who David is, knows that he's the future anointed king. Nabal would have known that as well, like more evidence of Nabal's foolishness. He says, When this happens, he says, My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant, meaning herself. That's the next step, is the leaders trust God and consider the big picture when confronting conflict. Leaders trust God and consider the big picture when confronting conflict. Two ways we see this beautifully in this passage and how Abigail does this. Abigail is not just pleading for her family, even though she is pleading for her family. She realizes my whole family could be wiped out if someone doesn't step in. But when Abigail steps into the situation, she's more than interested in just sparing her family at that moment. She's considering everyone within the conflict. She's not trying to bribe David. She's trying to encourage David in the sense of seeing his future and understanding what his future is. David, you're the future king. She says, and you need to trust God as that future king. You need to trust that God is going to protect you from your enemies. You don't need to take revenge into your own hands. And isn't that interesting? Because here's David, whom just a few weeks ago, we saw how he was mistreated by Doeg and Saul during that whole episode, and he wrote Psalm 52, which is a a psalm all about walking through injustices in our lives and allowing God to be the one who brings revenge for us and brings justice for us, not taking it into our own hands. And here's David acting against his own advice. And Abigail steps in and simply reminds him, hey, remember who you are. Trust in the God whom you have trusted in to get to this point. And she even uses an illusion. She says, hey, God will sling those enemies out from amongst you. And where did we see David using a sling to conquer that enemy? She was referring to the things that he would have known about. She was appealing to David's anointing and his future to say, don't make a rash decision right now to wipe out this whole clan just because you were offended. And she says also, in looking at the big picture, How sad would it be, David, that when you become king, as God said you will become king, that you suddenly have this mark in your past and everyone can say, yeah, that's the king. He got offended one time and he went and wiped out a whole family, just slaughtered them all with his men. I mean, how often do you open up your news today only to see one more leader and one more leader, and one more leader who all these skeletons are coming out in their closet of things that they've done in their past that now mark them and taint their reputation as leaders. And Abigail wasn't just caring for her own family. She was stepping in, risking her life to confront David in a way that says, hey, David, you're a better man than this, and I care about you enough I care about my family enough to say, when you become our king, you don't want this on your record. 
You don't want people to know you as the one who slaughtered all these people because you were offended. Abigail had the courage to see the big picture and confront with wisdom in this situation. The last thing we see in this passage in verses 32 through 36, and we see David's response. Abigail's courage, Abigail's courage and David's response, and we see in verse 32, and David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. So David's saying, man, if you wouldn't have shown up when you did, Abigail, I would have done what I came here to do. And I would have been left with the blood guilt of that rash decision if you hadn't cared enough to come and confront me. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. Here's my last point or principle for leaders as they face conflict, is leaders are willing to listen to godly correction. Leaders are willing to listen to godly correction. Now there's, there's an exception to listening to correction, but I put in here specifically godly correction. Anytime you're a leader, you're going to be surrounded by people who believe it's their job to correct everything that you do with their own opinion. Ultimately, they want to lead and they want their decisions, they want things their way, and they're always going to correct everything. You're always going to have that kind of conflict. And a leader has to be able to discern between just people-pleasing what everyone wishes and discerning when is godly correction being brought my way. And that's not what Abigail was doing. Even though she was interceding for her family, she wasn't just asking David to grant her own wishes She came in with godly correction because she saw David's future, she saw who David was, and she saw how this was going to impact him in his future reign as king as well. She brought God's will and God's truth to the table when she brought correction, not just her own personal opinion. And one of the things that a leader has to understand in the midst of conflict is that God often sends godly people. That's why he puts us in a body to step into our lives and ultimately save us from ourselves. Because there's no leader, even a leader as great and as honored as David is, that doesn't need the people of God to speak into his life at times when they're in the midst of making a decision that's going to harm others and harm your future. And a godly leader will listen when he receives godly counsel. Abigail's courage and humility in conflict in this story points us to a greater Abigail. That greater Abigail is Jesus Christ. You see, like Abigail, Jesus stepped into a major conflict that happened. In fact, the largest conflict to ever happen in the history of the world. That conflict was between a holy and perfect and generous protecting God and a broken and sinful 
and prideful and foolish Nabal-like people. You see, we as human beings often neglect the protection and the provision that God has given us all throughout our lives. We just overlook it and we think it's, it's my stuff and it's my talent and it's my things. I don't owe anyone else for this stuff. I've earned this myself. Just like Nabal, we're foolish like that. And yet, all along, it's been God's gracious protection and provision that's given us everything we have. In fact, it started in a garden many, many years ago. The very first human beings placed in a beautiful paradise, surrounded with all these trees and vegetables. And God said, you can eat of all of these things. I provided them for you, and I will protect you when you do that. However, just don't eat of this one tree of the knowledge of of good and evil. And what do we do as humans? What did our representatives do? They neglected God's protection. They neglected his provision. They weren't thankful for all that he had given them. They wandered right to the one that they were to avoid. They mocked God. They said, we don't want your protection. We don't want your promises. We don't want your teaching or your guidance. And the fact is, from Adam and Eve to our own households today, if we're honest, we don't change a whole lot. You see, we often don't stop, even during times of Thanksgiving, and say, you know what, God, everything that I have, even if I've worked for it, who gave me that talent? Who gave me that opportunity to work? Who placed me in the circumstances that I am that I should have such blessings that I have? And we don't stop and say, God, we owe back to you just like Nabal owed back to David. We often think this is my money, this is my time, this is my talent. And if there's anything left over when I'm done consuming my stuff, God, then I'll I'll give you the scraps. But don't expect me to honor you with stuff that I've worked for. See, the truth is, we're a lot like Nabal. And God had every right to strap on his sword and come to this earth and wipe every single one of us out for us foolishness, for our prideful arrogance to think that all this stuff is mine and you don't deserve a bit of it, God. but he didn't. See, God waited because he knew a greater Abigail was going to step into our story. An Abigail who didn't just have the courage to risk her life in bringing a provision to David, but an Abigail who knew that if he came to intercede, it was going to cost him his life. And Abigail, who, unlike Abigail, was going to bring a great provision, hoping that that would appease that king and he would turn his wrath aside. No, Jesus didn't have the privilege of accumulating wealth on this earth. And when he came to those last days, just saying, God, let me give you my horses. Let me give you my sheep. Let me give you all this stuff. And that will appease you from the wrath and the justice that you should bring. No, Jesus didn't have that privilege. Jesus knew the only thing 
that would provide for your offense and mine was his own life. A perfectly lived, humble, sinless life before the Father, knowing that when he went to intercede, when he went to take responsibility for our sins before the Father, that it was going to cost him his very life. That was the only sacrifice sufficient. And he went anyway. Now he pleads with you and me, all of us foolish Nabals, and he says, trust me. Put your hope and faith in me. In your foolishness, recognize that God has provided a perfect sacrifice. That if you will place your faith and trust in him, he will appease the justice of the Father on behalf of us foolish Nabals. You know, as Thanksgiving comes along and Christmas is looming in the near future, We know that these are holiday seasons where we gather together and celebrate as our families. But also, we know this strange dynamic that as our families come together to celebrate, it also is a time where a lot of those conflicts that resolve and reside within our families rear their ugly heads. We love having our families all come in and gather with us, and then as soon as they get there, we go, I wonder how much longer they're staying. Come on, be honest. You know you're saying that. Because in those times, conflict tends to rear its ugly head. And sometimes those conflicts in our family have been there for a year or two, and other times they've been there for generation after generation after generation. I believe this is a timely message for all of us. That maybe this Thanksgiving, maybe this Christmas, God wants to give more than just a wrapped gift to your family. Maybe he's sending an Abigail. Maybe he's preparing you to be that courageous one, to step into your family and look past just your personal offenses and look to the future of your family, to the future of whatever relationship may be at odds right now. And risk a little bit yourself. Take responsibility and reach out to reconcile something that may never get reconciled and may never get better by passively sitting back and just watching it continue from generation to generation. You see, that's what Jesus did for you and me. And he didn't just risk his life. He gave his life to reconcile people. And now he's calling you and me to be those reconcilers in our family. Imagine a church that saw that heart and said, it's not just my family, it's my workplace. It's my church, it's my community. And realize that like Jesus, we are Abigail sent in to reconcile a world to himself. And he has shown us in spades how to do such. You see, leaders are going to face conflict. You're going to face conflict as a Christian in this world. But how you face it can lead to reconciliation or continued distance. My prayer is that we would follow the example we see here and ultimately the greatest example we have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.